This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and now on iTunes too. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Andrew Albanese, senior writer at Publishers Weekly, filling in for Mark Rotella this week. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the publishing world. We're here for you, and we want to answer your questions, so send them to us at pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet them to pubweeklyradio, that's pubwkly radio on Twitter. Today we'll be talking with Mark Ipinski about his new book, Met Her on the Mountain, A 40-Year Quest to Solve the Appalachian Cold Case Murder of Nancy Morgan. Then PW Reviews editor Annie Carino will chat with us about Library Reads, a new website that lists the top 10 new books recommended by librarians across the country. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. And on the nonfiction, there's another true crime title, speaking of true crime. So uh, tell us a little bit about that. So debuting at number six, I believe, this week will be Exposed, The Secret Life of Jodi Arias by Jane Fellows Mitchell. It's a true story, and I'm sure many people who are listening to this show probably know quite a bit about Jodi Arias. She was recently convicted in Arizona. Uh, it's a, a grisly sort of murder that has lots of sex and uh, <laughs> and a little dash of Mormonism to go with it. That charts at number six at this week's bestseller list. All right. Well, there's not that much new on the fiction list either. Um, you know, a couple of uh, new books in the, the top 10, but uh, the top five are the same as they were last week. Uh, at number seven, we have uh, Marisha Pessel's Night Film. Uh, number eight, Frederick Forsyth's The Kill List. The number six fiction title, uh, hardcover fiction, is Terry Goodkind's The Third Kingdom, which is, uh, I, I think all I need to say is Terry Goodkind, because he's been writing pretty much the same sort of epic fantasy forever. Uh, and at number nine is a debut that is actually a, a debut novel, a first novel. Um, this is Samantha Shannon's The Bone Season, and uh, I've, I covered this over in my science fiction section. We call it a richly imagined debut in the PW Review. Uh, it opens a projected seven-book series about clairvoyance used as cat's paws in the year 2059, but this is not our 2059. Um, in, in this alternate timeline, mysterious events changed the world um, back in the the 1800s and uh this this is the the aftermath of that uh, so there are these various clairvoyants with different powers uh there's uh, there's one who uh, a woman named Paige Mahoney who has the illegal and extremely rare power of dream walking and of course as one does when one has illegal abilities you use it to serve criminal syndicates uh and in this case in London um, but she's kidnapped and sent to a hidden penal colony where there is a connection to uh, entities who come from another dimension. So this is clearly not the world that we all know. Um, and it sounds pretty complex as she is trained to be a weapon in the service of the extraterrestrials, the extradimensional entities. Um, but of course, she keeps dreaming of rebellion and escape. 
So this is really a story about a, a woman who, because of her abilities, always ends up serving somebody else's cause. Uh, and she's really struggling to find her own definition uh, and her own cause and to fight for herself on her own terms. So our review says the internal mythology is complex and intriguing. The emotional struggle is captivating and the pace rarely falters as Paige unravels the mysteries and dangers of her new home. So this extremely strong series beginning will have readers eager to see whether Shannon can maintain her stride given that there are six more books to go. So that's, uh, that, that's the major title that I see on our fiction list, uh, our fiction hardcover list. And again, that debuts at number nine. As Mark and I have been noting over the last few weeks, it really is a slow time of year. So I, I think it'll just be another week or two before we start to see those big fall books coming out. But it's really hard to believe here we are at the end of August. It's really hard to believe we're at the end of August. But as you said, we do have those big fall books coming out soon. We'll be looking forward to talking about those. Absolutely. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Andrew Albanese, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, investigative journalist Mark Pinsky will tell us how he may have solved a murder mystery that had the police stumped. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Andrew Albanese, filling in for Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the offices of Publishers Weekly in New York City. Today, we've got Mark Ipinski on the line. He's the author of Met Her on the Mountain, a 40-year quest to solve the Appalachian cold case murder of Nancy Morgan. Thank you very much for joining us, Mark. I'm glad to be here. So um, tell us a little bit, uh, this is very appropriate, we've got sirens in the background <laughs> here at our New York office. Um, tell us a little bit about who Nancy Morgan was and what happened to her. Nancy Morgan was a young anti-poverty worker, a member of an organization called VISTA, which stands for Volunteers in Service to America. It still exists. It's part of uh, AmeriCorps now. And she came to the mountains of western North Carolina in uh, 1969 and 1970. And in the late spring of 1970, she was kidnapped, raped, and murdered in a case that until now has not been solved. So um, this was in, in Madison County, North Carolina. Uh, how, how did that area get the name Bloody Madison? And, and what's it like in that part of the Appalachians, for those of us who haven't been there? Sure. Uh, it's at the extreme west part of uh, North Carolina. It's, it's right on the Tennessee border. It got its name Bloody Madison from a Civil War massacre, which has actually appeared in fictional form in a number of books, including Cold Mountain. Um, it was the massacre of 13 uh, boys and men, all civilians, uh, following um, an incident in the Civil War. The county was deeply divided. The, the county itself was divided as a civil war between supporters of the Union and supporters of the Confederacy. And there was an incident involving um, salt supplies uh, that uh, resulted in a raid on the county seat of Marshall, and in retaliation, Confederate forces went up to a place called Shelton Laurel, where many Union supporters lived, and rounded up 13 men and boys, and rather than bring them in for trial, some of them may or may not have been a part of the raid that set off the incident, uh, they just marched them off to a culvert and, and murdered them. Wow. So, you know, the, the subtitle mentions a 40-year quest to solve the case. So can you talk a little bit about how the investigation was handled, or should I say mishandled? It was mishandled from the beginning for a number of reasons. For the first few days, it was uncertain who had um, 
responsibility to uh, head the, the investigation. The, uh, she was a federal worker, so that was one issue. She was driving a federal car. That was the second issue. Her body was found on a piece of land that had just been donated to the federal government to be a federal forest. But normally speaking, um, the feds didn't take jurisdiction, so it would have been either the sheriff of Madison County or the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation, which tended to handle most murders at the time. There were also some park police milling around. So there were all these people, including FBI agents, on the scene. And for about six weeks, it was unclear who had responsibility to lead the, in the investigation. The sheriff at the time was a politician who really was surprised to have been elected to the post, and he really wasn't a law enforcement person, and he ended up stepping aside and and turning the investigation over to his chief deputy, who was only 25 years old. So there was a lot of confusion and a lot of uncertainty. Um, the crime scene was mishandled. The evidence went astray. Leads weren't followed. Uh, for a time, the FBI became involved because the father of the victim was a career military person who had gone to law school with an influential member of the uh, House of Representatives. And through him, uh, J. Edgar Hoover was uh, involved in the case and got the FBI involved in it, but only for about three or four months. When they exhausted all their leads, uh, they bowed out of the case. The only benefit for me, as I later became involved, is that they generated a, uh, a lengthy investigative file, which I later got under the Freedom of Information Act, and I found that uh, quite helpful in my own investigation. Yeah, so what led you to pursue this particular story? Well, I was at Duke University in the late 60s, and I was very politically active. I was, um, now I guess I'd be an old lefty, um, hmm. but very politically engaged. And when I opened the newspaper the day after her body was found, I saw this article, and I looked at her face. They had a, her yearbook photo, and it looked like a lot of my own friends. And I had, a friend of mine had been in Vista, not in that project, but had been in Vista. And the victim was a, a military kid, a Air Force kid. And my girlfriend at the time was, was a military kid. And there was a sense, I think, of political solidarity uh, that some one of us had been, had been killed. And the killing took place roughly six weeks after the killings at Kent State and Jackson State following the Cambodian invasion. And... I just saw her as someone I felt a kinship for, both politically and, in a sense, emotionally. And I determined, as best I could, that I would do what I could um, to bring those responsible to justice. So are you willing to tell us what you uncovered in your own investigation, or would that spoil the book? No, no. I think there... Um, 14 years after um, the woman was killed... Another sheriff, a local sheriff, um, tried another member of VISTA for the murder in what I think was a transparent frame-up uh, for political advantage. And even though they brought an outsider, a long-haired outsider, back to be tried, the case was so transparently corrupt that um, the local jury spent only 45 minutes to acquit this person. But over the years, when I began seriously investigating the case, beginning really, well, I was interested in it in the 1970s. In the mid-90s, I began going up to Madison County two weeks a year, a week in the spring, a week in the fall, and doing what happens all the time in uh, um, mysteries 
movies and on TV, journalist tries to solve murder. By the way, it's a lot more difficult to do facts than it is <laughs> in fiction. But I don't um, doubt that. And and over the years, an alternative narrative surfaced for me, and that is that um, the people responsible were five local near do wells, and. Um, at first, the outline became was very vague, and then over the years, I was able to refine it and actually get some names and begin zeroing in on a number of people who were still alive. Some of those who were named were, were dead or, or in the wind somewhere. And in the end, um, I located one of the five who is serving a lengthy prison term for poisoning to death his own five-year-old daughter. And uh, he confessed to his part in it and named the other people. Um, because he has had a lengthy and violent criminal record and lies a good deal, in the end, the law enforcement people came to be skeptical about his, his confession in this murder. But we just had to agree to disagree on that one. Um, there was another of the surviving members of the five uh, who was not in prison. I went to see, and he admitted being with this other person on that day that she vanished, but he denied uh, being a part of it. So in the end, um, I'm, I believe that my narrative is correct, but in the end, the reader will have to decide um, who he or she believes is responsible for the murder. You know, for many years, you were an investigative journalist, uh, and you specialized in murder cases, including Ted Bundy and Captain Jeffrey McDonald, uh, and then you took a break. So what brought you back to uh, that topic? Well, by the end of the of the 1970s, um, the last case I worked on, unfortunately, included a friend of mine who was murdered in Greensboro, North Carolina, on November 4th, uh, 1979. Uh, a group of leftists were having a demonstration, and some Klansmen and Nazis opened fire on them, and a number of my friends were killed and severely wounded. And I covered that case. I covered the the, the aftermath of the shooting. I covered the funeral. I covered the trials. And it just had gotten too close to my own personal life. And I said, I've had enough of murder. I'm going to leave it behind. And I did. I became essentially first an investigative reporter and then a religion writer. Um, but the Nancy Morgan case, I just couldn't let it go. It sort of stuck with me. And I went to work for the Los Angeles Times in Orange County, California. And although I basically was a religion writer, investigative writer, involving religion and televangelism in particular, uh, at one point there was a budget cutback, and I was sort of thrown back onto the criminal beat, which in this case meant the murder beat. And, um, and it just took a toll on me. But I still, the Nancy Morgan thing, I just couldn't shake it loose. And so when I decided that I had to leave the L.A. Times, I thought, well, I want to do something substantial. I've learned, I'd learned an awful lot in the... 20 or 30 years that I've been covering murder, I thought, well, I have this skill set. I have this sort of nagging obsession with this one last murder. And so I, I said, I'll do one more and see if I can actually bring those responsible to justice. And that's what I began doing seriously in, in 1994. Ironically, um, just as the book is about to be published, um, Trayvon Martin was killed just 25 minutes from my home, and by that time I had been laid off by my then employer, the Orlando Sentinel, where I'd been a religion writer, and I thought, well, maybe somebody's trying to tell me something. I thought the issues involved in the Trayvon Martin case were very significant, 
and it was right up the road. So I, I guess, laced up my boots and and went back to court. And I, and I covered the aftermath of the shooting, and I covered the trial for a number of freelance clients. So tell me a little bit about um, what your investigation looked like. I mean, you said, obviously, it's a lot harder than it looks in the movies. So so what is it like? I mean, from 1994 to, to now is a pretty long time. Right. And I, I had either the luck or the misfortune not to have a deadline. It's the dream that every journalist has. <laughs> you, you, you report until you're finished with the caveat that... Um, uh, Robert Kara says, you know, don't fall in love with your with your research. Um, and so I, I didn't have a, a deadline, so I just began going up there. When I first went up there, I made um, a list of everybody who I felt I needed to, to – well, I first began with, with a paper chase, and that is I got the autopsy, I got the police report. These These all took time, by the way. I filed a Freedom of Information Act request with the FBI, which took a year to come through. And I began – with the paper, you, you always, the schematic way you do that, you begin with the paper. Once I had the paper, I, I knew who I wanted to speak with. So I had to find out who was still alive after all these years. And I made a list of the people, kind of concentric circles, or who were the people I needed to talk to most because they knew, were likely to know the most about what happened around the murder. And then over that, I, I, I laid another list, which is who among those were the oldest. And I wanted to get to the oldest ones first, A, before they died, or B, before they slipped behind the curtain of you know, memory loss. Now, and, and then the big hurdle for me was to getting, one, to get them to speak with me. I'm an outsider. I mean, I'm a Jew from the Jersey suburbs, you know, coming up to the mountains. They've had so many bad experiences with people caricaturing them. Um, how could I win their trust? before they died, and uh, obviously some people had self-interest in the stories that they would tell me if, in fact, they would agree to speak to me. So that winnowed the list very quickly, and it gave me an informal order of how to speak with people. And so what I, I worked on this master list, and I would come up a, a, a week in the spring, a week in the fall, leave my sort of settled suburban sunbelt life, dad, uh, husband, uh, religion writer uh, with, you know, synagogue and Boy Scouts and rec athletics, uh, Rockports and Volvos, and sort of leave that behind, that world behind, and go up to a very different world and assume a very different role. And so, um, without being melodramatic, since it was an unsolved murder, um, I never told people when I was coming. It was generally in the spring, generally in the fall, and an old Duke University friend of mine had an inn up there, so I had a safe place to begin with. So I would come up usually on a Saturday night or a Sunday, and Sunday afternoon I would go down my list with phone numbers and say, ask people would they see me that in the week that followed. Um, I made sure that um, the innkeeper, my friend uh, Elmer Hall, always knew where I was going, I never did any interviews after dark, and so I was prudent without being melodramatic. And um, the accretion of detail, the accretion of interviews, uh, almost all the interviews were on the record and taped. I had, I invested, since I had a job, I invested in having a court reporter transcribe almost all of my interviews. So I had this wealth of material that kept piling up and piling up, 
it's a dream for a writer to have this, a nonfiction writer, to have this material to then mine through. Um, and then, at this time, I was still working for the, uh, the Orlando Sentinel, which I worked for from 1995 to 2008. And um, this was, I don't play golf, and I don't have a boat, and I don't have a mistress. So all of my free time would go to this. Um, I think my wife was happy, got me out of the house, and <laughs> kept me occupied. And so, and it alleviated whatever frustration I felt on my regular beat at the newspaper. But when I was laid off in 08, I thought, well, I've tarried enough uh, with this. Now it's time to start to write. And so I began to write. And then I had so much material. The stuff was so long and unfocused. I, I had to, um, I employed several uh, friends who were also independent editors, just basically to help me find the narrative spine. Uh, for this piece, how much of it was the murder? How much was it the biography of the woman who was killed, who was kind of a an avatar of a generation in many ways, I learned. How much of it was I try to solve a murder? How much of it is the history of Bloody Madison? How much of it is the political history of this place, which was under the thumb of two very colorful brothers for 35 years? And these were all elements, and I knew they were elements, but uh, how how I did the balance was a challenge to me. I, as a journalist, I like to say that if I'm engaged in a subject, I think it's interesting or important, hopefully both, under a thousand words, I can be deadly. When I get over a thousand words, the further I get from a thousand words, the more help I need from an editor. Mm -hmm. You've mentioned that you're a religion writer, um, so I'll raise another element that might have factored into this. Was there a religious element to the story at all, or perhaps a religious element maybe to, to your part or your desire to, to write the story? In, in two ways, yes. In a larger sense, Madison County had for more than 200 years been the beneficiary or the victim of what I like to call the altruistic impulse, which is outsiders from the north, missionaries, both religious and secular, who come there to help people, whether the people wanted to be helped or not. And they sometimes, they were well-intentioned, but often ill-fated in terms of the lasting impact they had. So there was a natural suspicion of outsiders, both of the Vistas, when they came in the late 60s, because of this history, and to some extent to me when I came in. The key element was respect. Now, from my own personal motivation, yes, there was, I'm not a very religious person. I'm, um, I'm strongly identified, and I go to synagogue, um, but I'm, I don't say that I'm a religious person. I'm, I'm a committed person, but not a religious person. But there is a, a verse in Deuteronomy that always struck me, and it's, justice, justice shall you pursue. In Hebrew, it's tzedek, 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 And that simple verse um, has sort of motivated me the whole time, the pursuit of justice. Now, that's, I, I hope that that's characterized my life from when I was running through the streets in, of D.C. in the 1960s and at the Pentagon in 1965 and May Day in 1971. And although I got respectable for a long period between those two things, I like to think that those uh, political and moral uh, objectives still sort of in some way framed my writing life and my personal life. 
We've been talking with Mark Ipinski. You'll be able to find his book, Met Her on the Mountain, in stores this October. Mark, thank you so much for joining us and telling us about your book. It's been a pleasure to be invited. I, I appreciate it. I'm Andrew Albanese. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Reviews editor Annie Carreno will tell us about Library Reads, a new website that lists the top ten new books recommended by librarians across the country. So stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Andrew Albanese, filling in for Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly, and today PW Reviews editor Annie Carreno has the lowdown on Library Reads, a new library-based book recommendation site. Welcome, Annie. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. Well, well, it's lovely to have you here. So what is Library Reads? I'd never even heard about it until you said you were going to come on and talk about it. So uh, give, us, give us the rundown. So Library Reads is a new website that just launched this month. And what it does is it produces a top 10 list of books that's recommended by librarians. I guess it's just a way for librarians to show their influence in the book publishing industry and also to um, get their voice to uh, and recommend books to a wider readership. So this is a site that's meant for readers to use? Yes, readers can go to it and get the list of top 10 books uh, recommended by librarians, but also it includes a lot of um, marketing material that each week, each month they produce when they do a new list of the top 10 books published that month that are coming out recommended by library. They have um, banners you can put on your website, so a lot of librarian blo- or libraries are blogging about book recommendations now, mm-hmm. and so they can um, link to this website or they also have a newsletter they can print and that lists the books with reviews by the librarians which is cool because librarian um you know traditionally the the work of the librarian isn't that uh visible to the public when we talk about libraries we often focus on the physical space and right uh, traditionally that's been okay because it we've been the work of librarians have been confined to the space of the library. But in today with ebook lending, the work of librarians isn't necessarily taking place within the library. But it, it doesn't mean that the librarians aren't still playing an important role. Right. So this kind of showcases that. And it's cool because librarians are writing reviews. They can be blurbed on the back of a book or, you know, that they're voices are are becoming more active in the conversation rather than just in the background, I guess. It's really a critical effort to me. And you've hit on something that I think is very important with this. You know, it's there's, you know, however many Barnes and Nobles left in this country and they're closing them and the borders is already gone. But there's still 16,000 public libraries, branches, etc. across the country. And this really does sort of take the librarian outside of the library, and it really helps towards something that's a buzzword we have now, discovery. And also, I think it's interesting because, you know, the librarians aren't the type that are going to choose Fifty Shades of Grey for their recommendation list, right? <laughs> Generally, they're going to be pouring over and picking out some good books. So do you get a sense that this is going to be a real boon for sort of uh, mid-list books and quality fiction that might otherwise be passed up? And also, I think where uh, there's a trend for librarians to focus on their user base recently. And so, you know, a librarian can be reading for um, 
their personal taste, but it's also reflective of the taste of their community. And so there's an opportunity for an, a new way to promote a new author or a lesser known uh, book that w wouldn't necessarily get the type of publicity had it not been discovered by a librarian. Now, you said these are um, you know, librarians across the country. So that sounds to me like a little bit less of a local focus and more this sort of attempt to take the local librarian and put them on this global or, or nationwide platform. Um, how is that going to work? Do, I mean, how did they form these top 10 lists? Well, it's basically numbers. So if how many votes, if you get the most votes, at, or if a book gets the most highest votes, it's the number one book on the list. And then they go through that and to the number 10 book. But the thing with e-galleys, it becomes very easy to, you know, provide librarians with a um, an advanced copy. And so, mm -hmm. you know, if you're just, you, as long as you're listed in Idlewise, you, you can um, have the potential to be on that list. And you can help with the help of your librarian, you know, get the word out that suggests to librarians across the country to be reading this. Oh, so, so, so librarians are, are there uh, social aspects to the site? You know, are librarians chatting among themselves on forums or anything like that saying, well, here's why I like this, here's why I voted for it, you should do that too? It's very new, but I wouldn't be surprised if that happened um, in the future. And I do think that there are, you know, venues. I just graduated from library school, so I know that uh, there's on LinkedIn and on Facebook there there are a lot of ways that librarian their communities of li that librarians use to talk um, about things with or promote within their community mm -hmm. or within the librarian community too. You mentioned your library school experience. I wanted to just jump in and ask you a little bit about that. You know, you joined us back here at PW. You, you interned at PW a while back and then went off to library school, and now you're back on our reviews team. Um, but you do have a library degree, University of Toronto, I believe, yes? Yep. Tell us a little bit about the library school experience, and was it everything you expected it would be and so much more? You know, I went to library school because I loved books that that was basically if you read my uh, essay to Toronto University of Toronto it was just talking about uh, yeah my love for books and I guess that's pretty common about students entering library school but you learn so much more um, about what it means to be a librarian I mean books are are definitely a part of it but there's so much work that goes into um, as we know in the publishing industry that goes in you know we often see the um, author and the book title but you know you don't see all the un work that goes into making the book a success the editor the publicity and stuff it's the same with the library you know there's a lot of uh, jobs that you you know you tend to focus on just the physical aspects of the library but it's a lot about what the people are doing and the work that's going on inside of the library that makes it important so um does library reads provide a window into that uh, you said something about it making it more clear what kind of work librarians do so how how is that reflected on this particular site it will be interesting because, again, it's just the first month of this. But I know that by giving uh, librarians uh, a name and a voice, I mean, each uh, book comes with a review that's that lists the librarian by name and then the library they work at. Uh, it 
allows you to see the way libraries shape um, the lifespan of a book, I guess. Mm -hmm. So um, I think it's a, an important first step. I don't know how, um, from a reader's perspective or from someone who might uh, look, f find this newsletter in a library from library reads and decide to pick up a book. And you know, having a newsletter that you can take home or take to school also helps to kind of spread the word and remind people. I mean, as you said, Andrew, discovery is the big word. Uh, and just remind people that a library is where you can go to discover something new. And we do need so many more places like that. You know, we see the chains like Barnes & Noble having troubles and borders going. There's uh, independents are having something of a surge, which I'm delighted to see. But still, their numbers are way down from where they were just a decade or two ago. So, you know, I really hope that people that this will help people turn to libraries uh, for more great books and great reading. I think it has a lot of potential, too. All right. Well, thank you so much, Annie. It's good to have a sense of what's going on on that end of the world. Thank you for having me again. And that's it for today's show. I'm Andrew Albanese. And I'm Rose Fox. And you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We love to hear from our listeners. So drop us a note or tweet us at Pub Weekly Radio. That's Pub WKLY Radio on Twitter. You can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and on iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. So check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 